0: Good morning. A little bit of a rough morning here at the hockey rink last night. Everyone always has a hard time winding down when they get home. After playing some great hockey, pond hockey is just awesome. Four on four. It's so much fun. Two 20-minute periods. Uh, but let's see if I can do this. So um, just wanted to give you a quick update on the usual metrics, um, cases, positivity, and I, I even found some information on variants in Virginia Beach. And I uh, also wanted to talk about how to construct a two-by-two two table to look at Whether or not a positive test result is really very interesting or helpful Uh, with regard to um, asymptomatic testing at schools, for instance. Um, In Virginia Beach, the kids just went back to full-time school four days a week. Um, In other parts of the state, like Chesapeake, um, the neighboring county, they've already been doing that, but Virginia Beach just headed back this week. So it's pretty exciting being stuck in traffic and uh, seeing kids really smiling and You know, shaking hands uh, as they're putting their masks on and heading into the building—pretty neat. All right, here goes. Thanks for listening. First off, is cases and positivity. So, what I do each week is take a look at the Health and Human Services Community Profile Report, um, which gives me a bird's eye view of the entire country, and then I dig down into the Virginia Beach um, Department of Health, well, Virginia Department of Health, and then I look at Virginia Beach specifically just to kind of see where we are. So I try to drill down from the U.S. to the state to the local area. So um, Virginia is still trending down as far as um, positivity and uh, also cases, um, 100,000 population-based estimates is what I typically refer to. So if you remember from last episode, it's the seven-day number of cases per 100,000 population that I find useful. Uh, because it controls for the number of people in an area. If you have more people densely packed into into an area, you're going to expect more cases for a lot of reasons. So it's just easier to control for that um, difference in the denominator. Okay, so Virginia is actually still in orange state. Um, the way that Health and Human Services Report breaks it down, is red states, orange states, yellow. And I don't even look past that because there's like three states who are not yellow. Um, so most of them are actually in the red or the orange still, which means uh for orange, it's substantial transmission. and uh, that means fifty to a hundred cases per one hundred thousand seven days, okay, so fifty to a hundred is where we are now. So that's great. We used to be in the red, which was over a hundred. Um, we are currently at 92, um, Virginia Beach. Remember, I drilled down into the Virginia Department of Health statistics, and you can get weekly cases for Virginia Beach City. Um, so, And then I control it for population. So we're at 78 there. So again, state overall is 92, um, Virginia Beach is 78. Our positivity is um, still trending down, which is good. Uh, we are at 5.3 for the state. And so that's of all of the tests done, 5.3% are positive. Virginia Beach is 8.4, so a little bit higher. Um, so that puts us squarely still in the um, substantial transmission category. And that's useful with regard to schools. The CDC has different guidelines for the schools regarding testing um, and offering testing based on what the local transmission is. So here again in Virginia Beach, it looks to be about 84 um, just for comparison, Virginia Beach is actually second in the state as far as number of cases. Um, we are at, again, 78 per 100,000. Fairfax um, was at 43. So even though they had more cases and started out higher, their population's bigger. So we actually have um, more, I would say, densely distributed cases. We have a higher rate um, when you control for the population. Um, we're both trending down, but we didn't trend down as much as Fairfax did. Um, Fairfax is at 526, down from 1175 four weeks ago. We are at 399, um, and we were at 454 um, four weeks ago. So Fairfax came down a lot. They're at about a quarter of what they, they were before, and we only came down um, you know, just a little bit, 399 to 454. It's almost not really worth mentioning I can only imagine that has to do with a, a pretty transient population maybe um, you know some additional exposure with uh, the military being here although those cases I don't believe are being reported through the Virginia Beach um, Department of Health. I believe that they are going through their own reporting silos. maybe they're aggregated um, at the national level in the Health and Human Services report and stuck into Virginia the state overall. But it's really, you really cannot get to um, base specific transmission rates. So I don't think that we can actually blame um, Virginia Beach transmission on the military, to be honest with you. I don't believe that the data flows that way. Um, Some time ago, the military did not want disaggregated um, transmission statistics by base um, for obvious reasons. Okay, so things are all trending in the right direction, but we are still in a substantial transmission state, okay, and area within that state. Um, So with regard to variants, I thought this was kind of interesting. I had not dug deep enough into the VDH um, site in the past. If you look at data insights, this is where you can find some of the weekly data and uh, also the variants. So if you go to the Virginia Department of Health and you find your way around all of the, um, the blue buttons for pandemic metrics and school metrics and locality metrics, et cetera, look for a button that says Data Insights, and that's where you can find the weekly data that I'm referring to and also the variants. So the variants are um, the B117. Um, people think of that as the UK variant. I mentioned last week that it was pretty prevalent in Michigan. Might have been driving some of their transmission. We actually have, um, of all of the variants found... Um, So they look at all of the different variants of concern and then they figure out the proportion um, of each, right? So you've got B117, B1351, et cetera. So the percents I'm going to give you are of all of the variants of concern, what proportion are the specific variant? So B117 was 61%, B1351 was 25%, and B1427 is 10%. Now compared to other... um, areas, we really have more interesting um, mix of variants. We have more variety in our variants. Hey, good morning, buddy. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Other areas were like 80 to 98% B117, which is thought to be about 50% more transmissible. But uh, we had 61% and then a greater proportion of the others. So the B1351 and the um, B1427. I don't know much about that one yet, um, B1351 is the uh, Brazil, I believe, and that one is thought to perhaps have a little bit more difficulty with um, escape from monoclonals and polyclonals, but not thought to be more severe. Um, B117 is uh, more transmissible. Okay, it's a good overview of where we are. This is why we still have protocols in place at the rank. Um, I don't really see that changing in the near term uh, until we have perhaps a little bit more information on our vaccination coverage among our adults. Um, some interesting research has pointed to uh, the possibility that vaccination coverage among adults helps reduce transmission among kids. That just makes sense. Um, adults are more likely to be symptomatic, more likely to um, aerosolize uh, because they're just bigger um, Lungs are bigger. If you just watch adults and kids, you can see that that makes some sense. Uh, If you see them out on the ice, you can actually see the breath coming out. So uh, for every, let's see, for every 20% increase in vaccination coverage among adults, um, 50% drop in transmission among kids. I believe that was a study out of Israel where there is substantial coverage uh, worldwide. Um, They're leading the The rest of the nations, as far as their coverage, 62%, at least one dose. So if we get more of our adults vaccinated, um, we may have a little bit more confidence that transmission is going to be reduced among the kids. This week, kids are going back to school, um, as I mentioned, full time. So there's going to be a bit more exposure potentially among the kids, um, more mixing um, potentially at school. Although they're masked, they should have some windows open. I think the AC is on, so I think they're not actually opening the windows, but um, air handling should be pretty good. If anybody's really interested in air handling calculations, um, let me know. Maybe we can talk about that with the next uh, episode. But there are calculators you can use on the web if you have your um, metrics from your air handler in your room. We can figure out what your um, air changes per hour, your ACHs, and uh, six, six and higher is very good, so we can dig into that next time. All right. I also wanted to talk about CDC guidance regarding asymptomatic testing. Um, There's a lot of discussion about kids going back to school. Let's get schools reopened. Um, I tried to find what proportion of schools are actually open for full-time learning. It looks like maybe 47% to 57% or so in the U.S. are open for the option of uh, full-time in-person learning. And uh, some of these schools, as a condition of reopening, are requiring testing or they're requiring testing weekly by the students. Um, CDC guidance uh, regarding testing actually is pretty clear. Asymptomatic testing is not terribly useful, and uh, they don't actually recommend it unless the prevalence is high enough to justify um, the trade-off between getting false positives and actually finding cases um, to prevent onward transmission. So I'm going to talk about that here in just a second, but the rule of thumb CDC has put out regarding using um, screening tests is positivity over 5% or more than 20 cases per 100,000 over 14 days. So if you're in a place that is less than 5% positivity, and we are not here, remember we're at 8.4, or less than 20 cases over 14 days per 100,000 population, really should not be doing asymptomatic testing. And I I got pretty nerdy about that yesterday because I noticed on my uh, little Twitter feed that LA Unified was talking about testing every five or seven days for their kids. But they also mentioned in the same article that um, the positivity was only one in a thousand. They're only finding one in a thousand kids positive. And that just struck me like, wow, what a waste of resources. I wonder what their false positive rate is in that setting with the prevalence like that being so low. Um, So... Again, it's not, it doesn't seem to be too widely discussed, the CDC rule of thumb, but you can easily find it if you go to uh, CDC um, antigen testing, asymptomatic testing, or screening schools guidance. CDC website um, may take you two or three clicks to find it. If you have trouble, just let me know. It's, it's not hard um, to find. You just have to look for it. But the guidance is clear. Okay, this may take five minutes. You're going to want a sheet of white paper or something, you know, graph paper or something to, uh, to help you organize, and we are going to walk through why asymptomatic testing in a low-prevalence environment doesn't make a lot of sense, and I hope that once we fill in all these boxes, it will be clear. Hopefully, this will be fun. Get some coffee. Um, you can hit pause here, come back once you have yourself assembled with pencil and paper. All right, I'm going to do my best. This would be easier on a video, but you don't want to see me this morning without coffee. So we're doing this just verbally. All right, so write this down in the top left of your piece of paper, your N, that's your sample size, your N equals 10,000. So we are in an imaginary place with 10,000 students. Um, Just under that, write down SE, that's your sensitivity. That's 97%. Sensitivity is the proportion of all of those with a disease or a condition that your test is able to find. Then right under that, write down SP, and that is 99%. Your specificity is all of those without the disease or the condition that your test is able to assign negative to. Okay, now draw a, uh, a box, and then cut that box into four quadrants. I know you played four square. You're going to make a four square table now, okay? Once you're done with your four square table, across the top, the two cells at the top, that's going to be your disease, presence of disease or condition. Let's just say COVID, okay? And then your top left box, put a little plus over that one. Your top right box, a negative. And then on the left side, so the two rows, please write test. That top left box will be a plus and that bottom left box will be a minus. Okay, so you should have a four by four. Your top left box should be positive, positive. Your bottom right box should be negative, negative. And then your top right box should be the test is positive, but the disease is negative. And your bottom left box should be the test is negative, but the disease is positive. Now in your boxes, Okay, we're going to label each quadrant. That top left quadrant, the plus plus, positive, positive is A. So just stick that in a corner of that box. Your top right is B. Your bottom left is C. And your bottom right is D. So again, positive, positive is A. Negative, negative is D. Positive, negative is B. That's your top right. And negative, positive is C. It's your bottom left. Okay, so we talked about sensitivity. Sensitivity, I mentioned, is the percent of all of those who have the disease that your test is able to actually find. Okay? So in our group of 10,000 people, let's imagine for a moment that we have 1% prevalence. Okay? And so... In that column under disease, that's positive. One percent prevalence at the very bottom would be a hundred people falling into that group, right? And then ninety nine hundred would be negative. Okay, so at the at the bottom under your table, under your four by four table, put a hundred on the left and ninety nine hundred on the right. Okay, so that's what's actually happening in your population. Now let's look at how well does your test actually do? Okay. So your test is going to catch 97 out of those 100 people. So where do you think that 97 will go? That goes in box A. So they have the disease and the test found them positive. Okay. And then where do you think the three goes? The remaining three. They actually have the disease, but the test did not find them. Okay. So they have the disease, that's positive, but the test is negative. Hopefully you stuck the three in the bottom left box. All right? So that's sensitivity. Let's go over to specificity. And this, remember, is the ability of your test to figure out who really does not have the disease. Okay? So for specificity, of your 9,900 people, 1% are going to be missed. Right? They actually test positive, but they don't have the disease, okay? So the 99 will go in your top right box. The test comes back positive. It's a false positive, okay? But they are actually negative. They do not have the disease. 99 goes in the top right box. And then the bottom right box is the difference between the 9900 and those 99. So that should be 9801, 9,801 people. So when you look at your quadrants, your false positives at 1% prevalence are 99. Hopefully I'm still doing this correctly. I'm sure I'll hear from one of my hockey mom friends listening if I got this wrong. But I've had coffee. I should be good. Have not eaten, but I've had coffee. Your false positives are 99 and your false negatives are 3. So the risk you run here with a screening test at very low prevalence is you're going to isolate and quarantine 99 people. Um, Who don't actually have disease. And you'll miss three people who actually do have disease and could go to school and and potentially spread it. But you've got masks in place, you've got ventilation, you've got spacing, right? The only time the kids are really probably going to be likely to spread it is if they're crammed into a place for lunch and they're all talking. So uh, smart schools will cohort kids um, and try to keep those lunch uh, rooms a little bit more spaced out because that's where your masks are down and the kids are getting a chance to talk. Okay. So that's the risk you run there. Um, You can also do this at 2% prevalence. See if you can do it. And 5% prevalence. I actually ran through this all last night and double-checked all my numbers. Um, At 5% prevalence, I'm going to give you like the the end of the story here, and then you can maybe backfill your boxes. So at 5% prevalence, you should have in that disease positive column, right? You should have 500 people actually have disease. And then People who do not have disease should be 9,500, okay? So work back from there, right? Your false positives, when you have 5% prevalence, you've got 95 false positives and 15 false negatives. The really cool thing about using public health... um, uh, How should I refer to this? Metrics is another way to look at the data... In addition, or moving past just false positives and false negatives, is predictive positive value. So for every positive test that you get, what is the likelihood that person is actually positive? And so the predictive value positive, or the predictive positive value, I learned it um, PVP 20 years ago, but I think I've seen it more often, PPV, predictive positive value, is your box A over box a plus b so the true positives out of all of the positives that your test finds okay so this is a different way of looking at it and when we move from prevalence of one percent to prevalence of five percent your predictive positive value actually almost doubles okay So at 1%, your predictive positive value, A over A plus B, so that is uh, 97 over 196, is 0.49. Only 49% likelihood that that positive is a true positive. Isn't this fascinating? Um, So 97% sensitivity, but really predictive positive value is only 49%. Um, I ran the numbers for 2% prevalence as well. You're probably curious what happens. It's 66%. But by 5% prevalence, you get 84%, okay? By 5% prevalence, you should have in that top left box, 485. Top right box should be 95. And so it's 485 out of 580, okay? Uh, If you're really curious, I can take a picture of this whiteboard. Just text me. I will know that you listened all the way up to 20 minutes of this crazy episode if you ask me for a picture of my whiteboard. (laughs) and I will send it to you. Um, You can email me at abcmedicalwriting.com and I'll send it to you. Or if you're a friend of mine, you already know how to text me, okay? True nerds, I will give you a picture of my whiteboard. And then you can tell me if I got it wrong, all right? If you can even read my writing. So one of the reasons that, and I know I touched on this last week and I promised to come back to this, um, this crazy four square table, Uh, One of the reasons that we really ask parents to focus on symptoms for their kids is because that evidence of possible infection going on is really helpful in interpreting a test. So at 5% prevalence, you've got a much more believable test. Still, at 5% prevalence or at 5% positivity, you've still got an opportunity for 95% of the time for it to be um, some adenovirus or rhinovirus, some other cold virus, okay, Uh, or allergies. I just went up to New Jersey over the weekend. I am not a person who has allergies, and man, I had allergies. So, um, but you can tell the difference. If you've got energy, you don't have any headaches, uh, you're generally feeling fine, it's just you tend to be you know, sneezing or a little bit of runny nose, that's what allergies feel like. Anyone who has allergies knows the difference between an infectious process and allergies. Even if allergies are new to you, those are the clues you're looking for. Um, If you've got a slight fever, 99.5 or up, you know, go get a test, go get an antigen test. Um, They're fast and they're pretty good when you are symptomatic because you have enough of that spike protein detectable um, for the test to go positive. Um, When you're asymptomatic, you don't have enough of that. And the other problem that CDC is pointing out, and I think they're actually really worried about with asymptomatic testing, meaning no symptoms, is the possibility for somebody who's not really well trained on these rapid tests to cross-contaminate samples. Um, There's a a very thorough discussion about how to actually do this, um, how to run these um, fast tests. And unless you're careful with your procedure, you can pretty easily cross-contaminate. So um, that can increase the false positives beyond. So you would reduce your um, sensitivity and specificity and make it even worse than what I just laid out in this table. So does that make sense? Is that kind of cool? Is it super nerdly? I know some of you really actually do like this. So I hope you find it cool. Hey, thank you so much for taking a listen to this episode where we dug deep on sensitivity and specificity and looked at our hypothetical group of 10,000 people. Your takeaways from this are um, in a low prevalence environment, so 5% or less, and uh, a low number of cases where we're, we're not there yet here in Virginia Beach. Um, we're still at, you know, 70 to 90 probably uh, cases per 100,000 over seven days, but you know we will get there probably and when we dip below 20 and we're below five um, percent we should not be doing any uh, asymptomatic screening and there are places in the country that are encouraging um, the school districts to do that or at least requiring it. it may be a part of uh, contracts with the teacher union but i just am raising um, awareness about the fact that this is really not something that is terribly useful i mean even if you uh, have no philosophical issues with. Um, screening asymptomatic kids every five days—you um, might be frustrated that a whole bunch of people are unnecessarily put into isolation and quarantine, and classes disrupted, and lives disrupted, and childcare needed to be found, etc. Um, when the uh, predictive positive value is so low, um, so you want to hit, you know, prevalence of at least five percent before you really think about um, routine asymptomatic screening tests, and instead rely on the much more useful. Uh, rapid testing for people who are symptomatic so that's kind of your takeaway and you're now able to visualize that in a four by four two by two table sorry Um, where you can actually see that your false positives at one percent are 99 Um, and so you like isolate or quarantine 99 people and uh, only three people are uh, missed so not terribly useful and um, can cause a lot of frustrations this is one of those um, collateral consequences of um, ill-conceived policies that are introduced in the name of science and, and actually are really not that useful. And one of the reasons why I strongly recommend having a very broad, multidisciplinary approach to policy formation, and that's not just me recommending that. I mean, this is this is old, old news, and it's uh, the way public health can and always should operate. But I think that for many, many months now, we've been acting out of exit instead of out of uh, reason and discourse. Um, And I'm not alone in thinking that. So I'm going to close with a recommendation that you take a listen to if you have time or can make the time to a podcast I really value because of um, the ability to dig into these issues and listen to people with a variety of perspectives um, that are not the conventional fare that you're seeing and hearing. So please go check out Plenary Session, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y Session, And uh, in particular, if you want to get started with an episode I think you might like on the topic of vaccine distribution, please go look for 3.55. It's a conversation with a philosopher, Matthew Noah Smith. So um, I mentioned this before. um, I curate my Twitter feed to be extremely useful and collegial group of people um, by listening to people first and then choosing to follow them. So um, Matthew Smith is one. um, The Prasad, the host of Plenary Session, is another. And through Them uh, through Vinay and his guests, um, I found a wonderful group of people who are challenging assumptions, using data, having conversations like this. And um, I just, I think it's perhaps a way to um, highlight people whose voices are not um, given enough airtime, in my opinion. Things are getting better. I'm seeing these people published more I'm seeing them make the rounds, but, you know, for a year from, from last year, March through January, February, it was very difficult to have a um, somewhat divergent opinion, and these um, these folks, in my opinion, were very brave uh, to begin to speak up in a public way because I was not able to, um, so I will leave it there. We can discuss that some other time, what the risks are of having, uh, you know, a, a somewhat skeptical and uh, demanding um, critique of public policy, but I, I think it's terribly important. Um, I actually w- am reading Democracy in America um, by de Tocqueville, and it's very interesting how you know he he has like two lines then sum this whole thing up. If people are resistant to bad policy. Um, they may be respectful of authority and uh, you know submit to government, but. Um, only as long as it's credible and legitimate, and uh, they will resist policies that they believe are not valuable or um, credible or legitimate. Um, so, a little honestly tired of the, uh, the whole notion of anti science and um, categorizing people with, uh, with such, such um, blunt strokes. I think that we do a real disservice to the thinking public, the American public. Uh, who rightfully questions policy, and rightfully questions um, ill-conceived policy. So let's not paint ourselves into corners, um, policymakers. Let's think broadly. Let's um, bring a lot of voices to the table. Uh, Let's actually do these terribly painful two-by-two tables and think about how many people we isolate and quarantine um, in the name of science, and uh, think about better ways to do it, such as the the very simple matter of um, looking for symptoms. So I will close with that. Um, hope that's not too much of a downer, but the, the the main message here is there are ways to create sound policy, but it takes work, and yeah, it is a little bit painful, but it can be fun when you understand things. It's not that frightening when you understand how to construct a table like this or to interpret um, you know recommendations from the CDC. They're buried you know three pages deep on the site. It's not too hard to create good policies for your organization. And I actually think it's really, really fun. And um, the process of including many voices around the table will be difficult, but it invariably makes whatever it is that you come up with much more acceptable to the larger group of people that you're trying to help manage and sustainable, because you will have thought through all of the pushback in advance. So. Again, grateful for the opportunity to provide some support to the hockey team here and really enjoy thinking almost daily about our policies and um, how they square with the data and, um, dare I say, with the science. Um, because science is not bad, policy is bad. And bad policy in the name of science really makes science look bad. So, onward ho! Have a wonderful day, and I will see you at the rink.